Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. It was an amazing week. Our many, many thanks to the staff who made it happen. You guys were awesome. I was in and out of EBS all week, and I can tell you they worked super, super hard. And we're especially thankful to our VBS directors, Alina and Jocelyn. You guys were awesome as well. They're going to preach next Sunday. So we're so thankful for them. Thanks so much, you guys, for a great, great week. All right. So, oh, I need it's over here. So, how many of you have ever played this board game called Guess Who? Anyone? All right, not bad. How many of you don't like to raise your hands in church? Oh, yeah, I got you. So, it's this old game that was invented in 1979 where you would sit across from someone and there were 24 characters facing you, 24 characters facing them. You would draw a card, that would be your character, and then you would figure out how to kind of ask, you know, insightful and yet, you know, broad questions to try to figure out who their character was. Now, this game never really became digital, so it's not really that popular today. But of course, that's what we've named our series after this summer, because guess who is a game of identity? And that's what we're talking about this summer, is who wrote the New Testament? And we're starting to dig into the identities of these writers. Now, why would it matter who wrote the New Testament? Isn't it all just written by God anyway? In fact, if you're just starting to investigate Christianity and the things of faith, you might be surprised to to realize that Jesus did not write down his teaching. There were a lot of prophets in the Old Testament especially who did. Isaiah the prophet has a book. Jeremiah the prophet has a book and he wrote another one called Lamentations. Daniel and so on and so forth. But Jesus was not a teacher author. He simply was a teacher, and then he relied on the Holy Spirit to inspire others to write down the scriptures. The New Testament is therefore written by men, and only men. In those days, it would have been somewhat unusual for a woman to be educated enough to write to this level, and it would have been extremely unusual for a woman's viewpoint to be respected to this level. So that's why the Bible is written uh, exclusively by men. If the Bible was written today, I don't think it would be written all by men. I think it would be sort of a mixture. But the Bible was written by these men under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's an important word, inspiration, because the Bible was not dictated. Now, there are a couple parts of the Bible that clearly were dictated. For example, the Ten Commandments, right? You've seen the movie. God actually chiseled it right into the stone himself. And there are other times in the Old Testament that the authors would say, thus saith the Lord. 
in the old version. And that's where the authors were letting you know these are God's exact words, word for word. But most of the Bible was not dictated. It was inspired. And here's why that matters. Here's what we mean by inspiration. When I was a kid, one of my aunts had an antique stereoscope in her living room. The stereoscope was sort of a 19th century version of the 3D TV. They came with a collection of black and white photographs that looked three-dimensional when you viewed them through the viewer. Each photograph had the same image printed on it twice, and the stereoscope played with the depth perception of your eyes, making the two images fuse together into a single three-dimensional scene. If you only looked through one lens, the picture was flat and two-dimensional, but when you looked through both lenses at the same time, it took on three-dimensional depth and life. The Bible is like this in some ways. There's a place in the New Testament where it says that the scriptures are God-breathed, that they were spoken by God. Theologians sometimes use the term inspiration to talk about this, the idea that God himself breathed out the words of the Bible. But how should we understand this? Some people approach the Bible as though it were literally dictated by God, that the humans who wrote it were just recording word for word what they heard God say, as clearly as if he were speaking to them on the telephone. Others dismiss the idea of divine inspiration altogether and feel that the Bible is just a human record of people's ideas about God, an interesting book, but not anything God wrote. Both of these approaches, seeing the Bible as simply a human creation or seeing the Bible as something dictated word for word by God, are kind of like looking at a stereoscope through only one lens. The picture is going to be flat. If we really want the Bible to come to life, we need to view it through both lenses at once. It's a human book that people wrote and edited and crafted, and at the same time, it's a divine book that God spoke and shaped and inspired. Maybe a musical analogy will help. Different musical instruments have different tonal qualities depending on the material they're made of and how the notes are sounded. A trumpet is bright and explosive. A clarinet is breathy and earthy. A kazoo is nasally and playful. The same musician could breathe into each of those instruments and her breath would produce three very distinct sounds. She could play the exact same song on all three instruments, the very same notes, and no matter how good she is, the clarinet won't ever sound like a trumpet, and the kazoo will never sound like a clarinet. If the musician is God, and her breath is God's spirit, and if the different instruments are the different authors who actually wrote the Bible, this is a useful way of thinking about inspiration. Because the authors who wrote the various books of the Bible had each encountered God in a unique, unrepeatable way. And then, while God's Spirit was working in their hearts, they recorded what it was God was saying to them through that encounter. Like a musician picking up an instrument, God's Spirit was breathing through them, determining the song that came out. But at the same time, they were writing as people, with individual personalities and perspectives and passions, all of which determined what they wrote. Just like a clarinet doesn't stop sounding like a clarinet, or a trumpet like a trumpet, just because it's the same musician playing both, the fact that God was speaking through them doesn't mean it wasn't also them speaking. And even though the words were their words, it's still God's word we're hearing when we read them. Or like it says in one place, the sacred writings don't have their origin in human beings, but human beings spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so as we understand how God inspired these authors 
to write the scriptures. And we can see how it would be interesting to learn more about these authors, to unlock their, their backgrounds, their personalities, their gifts, sometimes their profession, to understand how God was using them as his instrument to inspire the scriptures. And so the kind of the way that we define this as Christians is the concept of verbal plenary inspiration. Now, don't go talk to your friends about this because you'll sound like a nerd, okay? But it matters. Verbal plenary inspiration is this exact concept. Verbal, meaning that every word is God-breathed. Plenary, meaning complete. And inspiration, the topic that we're talking about. So God uses the whole life of biblical authors as part of equipping them for this important work. Their personal history, their education, their work experience, ethnicity, family history, past mistakes, past victories. God uses all of that in the life of the author. Now, this inspiration is limited in scope. God didn't anoint someone as a biblical author and then everything they wrote was then scripture. You know, if St. Paul wrote a grocery list, that is not scripture, okay? God would come upon authors at certain times to equip them in the act of writing scripture, in fact, as you think about it, here's my opinion. I think verbal plenary inspiration is the reason that we have four gospel accounts in the Bible. Because four different authors set out to record the life, death, resurrection, the teachings of Jesus. Four different authors from four different perspectives. If God was simply going to dictate the scriptures, why would we need more than one gospel? Because they would all be identical. We would have sort of the official court reporter's record of what happened. But no, that's not how God chose to work. Instead, God inspired four different authors to write accounts of the gospel. And so today, in our game of Guess Who, we're turning our attention to the biblical author, Luke. Luke wrote one of those gospel accounts. He also wrote the book of Acts. In fact, Luke and Acts are written as a two-volume set. Now, in our Bible, the gospel of John is between them. And that makes sense for other reasons, because the, the gospels, of course, are grouped. And John's gospel has kind of a, a different perspective, kind of an inspirational message that's a little different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we have it between Luke and Acts, but these are two volumes written together. So what do we know about Luke? One thing we know is that he was a doctor. Different perspective than most of the other authors of Scripture. He was actually a physician. In his writing, he used words that made it clear that he was of a medical profession. And there's many, many examples of this. One would be this in Luke 14. Luke writes this, One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. The Greek word there for abnormal swelling of the body is hudropikos. Luke is the only author in the entire Bible to ever use this word, hudropikos. It does not appear anywhere else in the Bible. But whose writing does it appear in? It appears a lot in the writings of a man named Hippocrates. Has anyone heard of Hippocrates? Many of you have taken his oath, right? Hippocrates was a, a well-known, you know, groundbreaking doctor in those days. Luke is using his words, 
There's so many other examples of this. In Luke 13, he diagnoses a woman with scoliosis. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke talks about how the Good Samaritan dressed the wounds of the injured man properly, how he disinfected them with alcohol. He was very precise in certain things. Like there was the woman who had the issue of blood. Luke says, well, she suffered from this condition for 12 years. The woman with scoliosis, Luke says, well, she suffered from this for 18 years. You know, he's building kind of a medical history. And there are so many examples of this that it becomes clear that he was a doctor. What else do we know? Luke was not one of the 12 disciples. So if you're looking for him in the Leonardo da Vinci painting, he's not there. Okay? In fact, Luke makes it clear in his introduction to his book and the book of Acts that he relied on scholarship. He interviewed people to create an orderly account. So he was not an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. However, he was an eyewitness to the ministry of Paul. He traveled with him several times, especially later in Paul's life. In fact, if you keep reading Acts, when you get to Acts 16, Acts 20, Acts 21, Paul will be traveling and all of a sudden the narrator will say, and then we went from here to there. And then we went together. So he was with Paul. In fact, he was probably with Paul near the end of his life. Luke was also not Jewish, which is a completely different perspective than the other authors. Think about it. Luke is telling the story not from inside the established religious tradition, but from outside. Because it was groundbreaking when it became clear in the New Testament that the gospel was now open to all people. Because for generation after generation after generation, the Jewish people had been the chosen ones. The Jewish people had been promised a Messiah. Jesus came as that Messiah. And then Jesus said, well, this is going to be for everyone. And that is the perspective that Luke is writing from. Luke also, it's clear, knew Mary, the mother of Jesus. Luke is the only author who talks about the angels who appeared to Mary and appeared to Joseph. He's the only author who talks about the conversations that Mary had with her cousin Elizabeth, who was giving birth to John the Baptist. He's the only one who had these details. So scholars say it's obvious they must have met, they must have talked. Luke must have found Mary and interviewed her and worked with her when he was preparing his gospel. We also know that Luke was working under a commission. He was paid for this work. He was hired by a man named Theophilus to prepare Luke and Acts. In the very beginning of both of his books, he dedicates them to his benefactor, this man Theophilus, which means something like, you know, man of God or man who loves God or man who knows God. And Luke says, here are the books that I prepared for you. So that's kind of his biography. That's his guess who. But what else can we see? Luke had a strong commitment to the idea of story. He's a very gifted writer. In fact, Luke and Acts, by word count, are about 27% of the New Testament. He wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. And he had a strong commitment to story from beginning to end, both in a comprehensive way and in a narrative way. For example, Luke tells the most parables of Jesus, the most by far. 
Story spoke so much to Luke that when Jesus would tell a story, when it was told, he would write it down and he would save it for us. You will only find the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel of Luke. You will only find the parable of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke. The lost coin, the lost sheep. This is all from Luke. Luke also is the only author who tells the story of Zacchaeus. Are you familiar with Zacchaeus? I was reminded of Zacchaeus quite a bit this week, actually. The guy who caused all the problems at Bagel Boss. Did any of you see this video on the news? He was kind of this wee little man who was very, very angry. I was thinking, is that Zacchaeus? It might be. Luke tells the story of Zacchaeus. And not by coincidence. Zacchaeus was also an outsider. Zacchaeus was a Jewish man who chose to collect Roman taxes which meant the Jews didn't like him because he collected Roman taxes and the Romans didn't like him because he was Jewish. He was a man unto himself. He was completely alone, a total outsider. And Luke wanted us to know how Jesus went to his home, how Jesus ate with him. That's when Luke we made sure that we understood in the story of Zacchaeus that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It was Luke's commitment to story that led him to write Acts to begin with. It's the only book of its kind. It's the only book in the New Testament where he's talking about the story of what happened, the account, the spread, that after Jesus died, here's what happened next. In this place, at this time, the Spirit came on these people, and then this sermon was preached, and these people were saved, and then we started to travel, and it went here and there. And he tells that story and then intentionally leaves it open-ended at the end. And Luke was so gifted at telling his story that people started to doubt his work. It sounded almost like a novel because it had uh, fictional type characteristics like shipwrecks and exotic animals and exotic vegetation, natives that were cannibals, snake bites, all kinds of things that felt like embellishments that one would find in, in kind of romantic literature. So scholars tried to pick it apart. They tried to say this simply can't be true. But here's what happened when they started to really dig into the scholarship of the writing of Luke. After the four Gospels, the next chronological account in the Bible is known as the Book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. According to most scholars, Luke wrote Acts as a continuation of his Gospel account. In fact, many have called the book of Acts part two of the Gospel of Luke. According to the book of Colossians in the New Testament, Luke was a doctor. He was also a loyal companion of the Apostle Paul. Many scholars believe Luke's two-volume treatise was used to support Paul's legal defense in Rome in about 62 AD. As a history buff, I'm always looking for my sources to pass the credibility test, so I appreciate Luke. The whole point for Luke compiling his two books was to collect the evidence and present the case for Jesus and his followers. Luke wrote his two volumes set as a careful record of history, what he calls an orderly account. Not only did Luke set out to write an orderly account, he has passed the test of a true historian on multiple occasions. In fact, during a period of skepticism in Europe during the mid-1800s, many scholars challenged Luke's writings based on a lack of archaeological evidence for his accounts. 
One of the greatest archaeologists of all time, Sir William Ramsey, was so convinced of this that he traveled throughout Asia Minor, Greece, and other places to document the physical evidence to refute Luke's history. After years of study in the field, Ramsey discovered the total opposite and completely reversed his position. Luke is an historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along with the greatest of historians. Another famous scholar, A.N. Sherwin White, went on to say, for Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity must now appear absurd. So we know that Luke carefully prepared his account. We know that it's accurate and trustworthy. But how does this help us to grow in our faith? How does it help us to develop a deeper love of Jesus? How does it help us to move further into the life that God has called us into? See, Luke's commitment to story is rooted in a much deeper story. And it's what you would call salvation history. So the entire Bible from beginning to end is laying out the history of the salvation of God's people. Talking, and you can think of it in these four major movements. And we've taught this in our discipleship classes. Both Trevor and I have taught this, but it's really important to impact us. Because see, the salvation history of God's people is one of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation is a sense of both God's majesty and also identity of his people. To say we belong to the God who created us. But then the fall, sin, has pulled us away from God and things are no longer right. Things are no longer pure. Things are no longer at harmony. We no longer have that relationship with the creator who created us. But then, through the life of Jesus, we see redemption. Things can be made right again. And once we've been redeemed, then the work of restoration begins for all things to be made right once again. And Luke is tapping into this grand thread of salvation history, helping us to understand where we are placed in any given moment in his account across this entire spectrum of the story of Scripture. And so in that story, he unfolds some very important movements. The first one is this. As a Gentile and a gifted storyteller, he presents a strong case that the gospel is for everyone. This was completely groundbreaking. That every single person would have access to the gospel. Beginning with the Gentiles, which is most of us in this room. And Luke starts in the very beginning. When Jesus was born on the eighth day, his parents took him to the temple to be circumcised. There he met two old people who had been waiting for the Messiah, an old man named Simeon and an old woman named Anna. These are the words of Simeon recorded by Luke. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon, who had been waiting, an old Jewish man waiting in the temple for the Jewish Messiah, the first thing he said when he saw Jesus, the baby, said, this is for everyone, Jew and Gentile. And so Luke is making it clear that in history, things have changed. 
chapter 16. He says, the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, the law, prophets, and the writings. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since, that's John the Baptist, okay? Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. Luke is saying, this is the fulcrum of history. We had all the law and all the prophets up to John the Baptist. Now, we have the good news being preached that everyone is forcing their way into. This is huge. Luke is saying, it's for everyone, Jew and Gentile. And it's also for all classes of people. It's not for the 1%. Right? Now, in our country, we've been told for hundreds of years that everyone should have, an, have access to everything, and everyone has a right to everything. So that's what we've been bred, that's what we've been taught for generation upon generation. Well, that was not common in the ancient world whatsoever. There were plenty of people born into poverty, born into slavery, born into servanthood, born into terrible circumstances that had no choice and no chance to ever come out of that. And Luke is saying, the gospel isn't for the 1%. The gospel is for everyone. Luke wants to make this clear in chapter 4 when Jesus begins his public ministry. Jesus is, quotes Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, doctor, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke has a heavy emphasis, by the way, on the healing ministry of Jesus. Talks about it all the time for obvious reasons. He says, this is the great physician who healed all who were sick. And Luke is saying, the Savior has come. Who is the good news for? Well, it's for people who are sick, injured, people who are in prison, people who are oppressed. They're the ones who see the good news. And by the way, this was not Luke kind of slanting his message to his audience. If Theophilus could pay Luke to work for years on compiling his gospel account and his book of Acts, he must have been quite wealthy. So his audience, Theophilus and his peers, this is, this is not something that they were kind of looking for. This is very different for Jesus to say, no, 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 the gospel is for everyone. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor. Healthy, sick, it doesn't matter. Luke is also the gospel writer who goes much deeper on helping us understand the gospel is for both men and women. In fact, Luke 8 talks about the women who traveled with Jesus. You had Mary, of whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife, the manager of Harold's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Luke is saying the gospel is for everyone. Every single person. We're kind of used to that at this point. This is not news to us because we've always been raised in a New Testament world, right? There's probably no one here today going, I thought the gospel was closed to me until today. This is important though to understand the message of Luke because of what follows. Because remember, Luke is committed to the grand salvation history, the grand narrative of Scripture. But this is not simply the story of the Bible. This is your story. 
You were created by God personally, specifically. He knew who you were before you were ever born. He knew when and where you would be born. But then sin broke the relationship between you and God. The, both the original sin of Adam and Eve that has stained us all. And by the way, you've had plenty of your own sin along the way. If you're not sure, ask your mother. She will tell you. Okay? But from the fall then, we have redemption that all can be made right between us and God. But what I'm afraid of is for so many of us, that is where we allow our story to end. So yes, I understand that I was created by God. I understand that I am his. I understand that sin broke everything, but that Jesus has fixed everything. And now I am redeemed. We sing about being redeemed. We praise about being redeemed. And that's great. But it's not the end of the story. And where I think we can find our inspiration from Luke is to realize that he didn't personally stop here at redemption because he then threw himself into his ministry of restoration. Luke had a great trade. He was a doctor. And in those days, a doctor was working class. So they weren't ruling class. They weren't aristocracy. But they were working class. They had a good job. They made good money. He would have been comfortable. It's also made clear that he probably had some money because he was able to work on this for years, and also travel with Paul. But he didn't allow that to stand in his way. He didn't allow that to be a barrier. He didn't say, you know, I've got a lot going on. I really can't work in restoration right now. But instead, he committed himself to the work of restoration, which in his case was to write 27% of the New Testament. Now, God is probably not calling you to write 27% of the New Testament. If you feel like he is, we should talk after the service, okay? But what is he calling you into? What is the ministry of restoration that God is calling you into? What are the gifts that he has given you? If we played guess who about you, what would we say? And then how would God use those pieces of your life to bring restoration to the world? Many of you are in the medical profession, and you can directly be inspired by Luke to see how he didn't just minister to body, but he did body, mind, and soul, right? Others of you, you're teachers. You're saying, you know, I don't want to just teach. I want to pour myself into my students so that they know that there's something in me that's the gospel to bring restoration to the world. How can you be working for justice? How can you be working to make things right? How can you be standing up for the oppressed, for those who are sick and poor and broken? See, we want to follow the example of Luke. Luke who said, I will not simply sit back on my trade and on my profession, but I will pursue the calling that has been placed on my life using the unique gifting that is mine and only mine. We have an opportunity in this life. Imagine how Long Island would be changed if every one of us said, I'm going to take what God has given me, and I don't care if it's a lot or a little, but I know you, you have a lot. If you say, I'm going to take everything that he's given to me, and I'm going to use it for restoration into this world. Homes would be changed. Communities would be changed. Businesses would be changed. Schools would be changed. The world would be changed as we pursued this ministry of restoration. 
So I'm going to ask the band to come up if they would, and we're going to continue our service together. We're going to receive the elements of communion, and then we're going to sing. And as we pause to pray right now, as we pray together as a congregation, take a moment to reflect. What are the assets? What are the gifts? What has God given you so that you can pursue that ministry of restoration? Will you pray with me? God, thank you that you've met us here today in this moment. Thank you that we are your people. You are our Father. Thank you that you're not distant and far, but that you're close. And God, we stand firm on the promise of your scripture that we know that you have equipped us to serve you, that you even created opportunities in advance for us to go out and serve you in this world. So Father, inspire us into the ministry of restoration. Instruct us how we can go out and lead us in changing this world in the name of Jesus. And we pray this in his name.